The Gist is brought to you by Audible.com with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, January 21st, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today's show is about fact and fiction, the difference between fact and fiction. It's plain to see, as plain as the beautiful face of every actor or actress who portrays a mountain man mauled by a bear or a scientist stranded on Mars, a map inventor, a captive. Yeah, Oscar's so white, but also Oscar's so pretty. Though two great black actors who were shafted for the awards, Idris Elba and Michael B. Jordan, would not have hurt the pulchritude quotient at all. But we know this, right? We know that pretty people get to be in the movies because if we're watching the heartrending story of a woman who gives birth while being held captive by a monster, at least make it a pretty lady. You know, give us something to look at other than all these serious themes to grapple with. We know actors are prettier than the rest of us. But you know what I've been thinking about? They also sound better, too. I don't mean the dialogue. Yeah, that's true. I mean the timbre of their voices. This is from the new Showtime drama, Billions. It's Paul Giamatti as the U.S. prosecutor going toe-to-toe and larynx to larynx in a throaty threat-off against Damian Lewis's hedge fund billionaire. Your daddy's got a little place out there. He must let you use a bedroom some weekends if you say please. Walk away. That is how the prosecutor sound on TV. Here is a real-life prosecutor. It's Ken Kratz from Making a Murderer. Well, did that cause you enough embarrassment and enough angst that you obtained and planted blood? Why are there so many songs about rainbow? All right. Um, you know, as everyone knows who watched Making a Murderer, Ken Kratz sucked. Helium. Okay, okay, it's unfair. He can't help his natural register. Although, here is Paul Giamatti's natural register. He's talking to Stephen Colbert. I was actually very excited to do it. Not excited to do it. So you can see, you probably already knew this, talented actors use their voice and their bodies to create great effects. Vocal quality does convince an audience of a speaker's honesty and passion and seriousness. We're used to TV prosecutors and bad guys talking a certain way, and that does not always match up with real life. So what I'm saying is don't judge a book by its cover, but also don't judge an audiobook by its tone either. And all of this, everything I've said, touches on today's show. I'm going to take all these themes, and I am going to give you a show around them. Like a skillful creator of fiction, but unlike a documentarian working with the frustrating vagaries of real life, I'm going to tie it all in a bow. Because I will spiel about making a murderer and serial season one versus season two and what those shows tell us about our love of stories well told versus our love of murder stories. I will also be talking to the creators of the Showtime series Billions. Oh, yes, I will. And one more thing. Remember I talked about an audiobook by its tone? I'll be doing an ad for audiobooks. Although if you listen to some version of the show without ads, you'll just have to take my word for it which means you'll probably miss out on about 4% of just how skillful this top of the show you just heard really was. But now, to billions.
Brian Koppelman, along with his co-writer and co-creator David Levine, are the gentlemen, two of the three producers behind Billions, a new Showtime series. You might know Brian Koppelman because he has a podcast called The Moment on the Panoply Network. Hello, guys. Thanks for having us. Why do you guys keep at it together? Wow, there's, so, I mean, there's just so many angles of attack to answering that question. Mm-hmm. Dave, listen, this late audience hears me talk all the fucking time. Why don't but you answer that? But they love it. Answer <laughs> that. Well, they have good taste. But why don't you answer We uh, Listen, we're good on our own, but we're just so much better together, I guess, is the reason. Like the Rolling Stones. The truth is that for some reason, when I get an idea that I think is like really strong or fun or interesting, the thing I want to do is tell it to him. Mm-hmm. If you really went down to a micro level, mm-hmm. the two of us know little things that each one, the other guy, is not better at, likes more. You know, I will listen to a hundred songs before playing Dave eight songs for us to choose from for a spot, and he will spend thirty hours in color timing and looking at the grading of the thing before going, "Hey, dude, look at this." Mm-hmm. They're micro, but but honestly, he could pick the songs, and I could go do color grading. It's just in a TV series, and on a movie, we do all of it together. On a TV show, we do, ni- what, 98% of it together? A huge amount. Was Ra- Rounders, 1998, it came out. Was that the first thing that worked and sold, or the first thing that you really did? That was really the first thing we did together. Yeah. We set out, we researched the hell out of that subject, we outlined the thing, and we made a commitment to each other, even though we had other jobs, the two of us, that we would meet every morning and work for a couple of hours for as long as it took to get the thing finished. And when we got to the end of it, we knew we had something. I, I'd been working in Hollywood before that. We wrote it in New York, but for the years before that, about three years before that, I'd been working out in Hollywood and reading a ton of scripts. And I passed on a few to him that I thought were really good. Mm-hmm. And we had an idea of what constituted a good script, and, and we thought we had it. Rounders comes out in 98. Sopranos comes out in 99. When you were first doing movies, you probably thought about TV. There was great TV at the time. It's not like Hill Street Blues didn't exist, but it was totally... You wouldn't want to put your energies... Movies were the ne plus ultra, or however you say yeah. that in French. And, and But now TV really allows you a lot more latitude. Ne plus ultra, right? Yeah, is that it? I said I plus, so. maybe. Yeah, sorry. No maybes about it. You said plus. <laughs> In the beginning of our career, there was a TV was held in a different regard. The idea of doing network TV didn't feel like the place where you would go to do something serious on a creative level. We, in fact, the whole TV business then was like a spy magazine spoof of what the TV business would <laughs> seem like. We, right when Rounders came out, we had this got this call that a network president wanted to meet with us. And in fact, the network president wanted to make a deal with us, didn't want us to pitch him, wanted us to come in, and he was going to just give us, wanted to meet, and then wanted to just give us a blind deal to do whatever we wanted. And we said, what do you mean? The guy's going to just, we're going to walk in, he's going to say, we don't have to prepare anything, and the agent said, no, 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 he called us, he just wants to meet you guys and give you, and we're very young in the business then, we don't really know that that's Impossible, but on the plane out there, Dave says to me, we should make something up. I said, what do you mean? And he was like, we should, this feels- How do we walk into a room with nothing? Yeah. And I I remember I said, well, they said he's going to give us something. And you went, you know, why don't we just, do we have any ideas? case, (laughs) cover our bases. And we happened to have had the beginnings of an idea. And it was about some 45-year-old, like the kind of show that would go now. It was about some 45-year-old- 
um, ex-alcoholic whose life had burned out. He was sort of a Harry Bosch kind of a guy mm -hmm. who lived in the poker casinos of California. Right. It's still a show, his, by his the way. His wife had been killed. His wife had been killed. Sent him spiraling. And that's what the spiral happened. And now he's an unlicensed PI who plays poker all day long. And so we go in. And right up to going in, the agent just tells you where the TV business was. Then the agent says to us, we're on the phone with the agent, and he's like, are you sure we said we're not going to? Yes, positive these guys want to just shake your hand and give you money. Great. <laughs> we walk in, and the room is, uh, they tried in TV back then to make the rooms demographically accurate. So they had like the percentage of Asians in America were represented in the room, women, gay people, African-Americans, white people. Everybody yeah. could weigh in about how their sector was going right. to like. The so end. it looks like the background of the GOP convention. Yeah. They want to project. Hey, we're for everybody. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But of course, I mean, it was a white male guy yeah, at the head of the table. Sort of like the GOP. <laughs> yeah, convention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the yeah. same thing. Making the decisions. But so we walk in, sit down. Now it's going to sound after this whole buildup like it's not true. The guy looks at us. What do you guys have for What us? do you have for me? <laughs> and luckily, we, so we look at each other howling, but go, okay, launch into the pitch. And the guy says, um, it's, guys, it's, it's a home run. A winner. And everyone starts not, they wait for him, and then they all go, yes, of course, it's a, a home run. I can't believe just what we want. But he was like, we, our demo is from 14 to 18 and a half years old here. Right. So we said, oh, well, okay, but you think that they'll like, he goes, so I want to buy it. Let me just say, I want to buy the idea. I'm going to buy it. Can the guy, instead of being 45, can he be 21? Yeah. Because <laughs> kids get started young these days. Right. He goes, so it's oh, like this. And, so Dave goes, can he be screeched from Save by no. the Bell? So Dave says, I'm not, there's, by the way, no writer's embellishment right now in telling yeah. this. Uh -huh. Dave, we've never told this before, I don't think. Dave says to the guy, no, no, no. Um, so, you know, because of the alcohol, the guy goes, no, no, no. Kids start quick. So 17 years yeah. old, he's in rehab. Mm -hmm. Instead of his wife dying, girlfriend moves. <laughs> she moves and leaves to go to college. He has six horrible months, wakes yeah. up. Yeah. He's at the casino playing cards, solving crimes. Yeah. He's like, I'm thinking we get a kid who looks like Johnny. De and we just looked at each other and then went, oh, we're, fe we're feature film people. Yeah. Because we this can't. This is why we don't do TV. We don't do right. television right. because our guy's a 45-year-old alcoholic. He's not a 21-year-old uh, who had six bad months. But television, luckily... And by the way, even at that time, like you mentioned blues, but Hill Street Blues was years before. Mm -hmm. But NYPD Blue was on. Right. And David Milch was making great, right. incredible. And I think sometime around there, Freaks and Geeks was on, although it lasted like a year. It's not like mm -hmm. there was nothing. Right. The, but, but the preponderance of TV then was aimed at a different target. Mm -hmm. So this script, though, Billion Script was a spec script. Is that ballsy? Is that strategic? Why'd you do it without a network already saying we're in business with you? Now do something. It is. It's all the. It's ballsy, strategic, and stupid potentially. Okay. We. I just, get the ballsy part because you're without a net. What's the strategy? I mean, you know, it's not like we were um, behind enemy lines fighting with Navy SEALs as right. far as being ballsy. It was just we took a couple of months of our time and invested it in the writing without a sure deal. So, you know, we could have gone out and pitched this thing. But we'd had this experience a few times where you pitch it, they buy it in the room, everybody's talking about the same project, you go off and write it, you write exactly what you said, 
and they receive it and they just were thinking it was going to be slightly different. You somehow. had that with TV or with movie? TV. TV. Oh, okay. Where we'd made so a you've few had deals. That you, you did the show Tilt for ESPN. Yeah, years yeah. ago. But you that, haven't had TV you No, know, then we made but... three TV deals mm-hmm. between then and now. Three different times with the same network that I won't mention, but a, a very, very, very prestigious cable network. Okay. Pay cable premium network. Mm-hmm. And we made deals where they said... Uh, Would you say this network is not TV, though? Right. It's <laughs> no, it's not okay. TV. Gotcha. I want to be clear TV. about that. It's it's you watch on it on TV. You watch yeah. it on TV. I won't say who it is. Just leave it out. Fine. And uh, I'm just saying you don't have to go away Mm-hmm. To go to the box office yeah, for that yeah. one, you can home box office yeah, is yeah, going to yeah. work for you. They're yeah, fine. that's right. A localized ticket. Booth that's what I'm saying. A localized yeah, ticket right, booth exactly. is not a problem. So we made three deals in a row, and and got to have you know because of uh, we've done this for a long time and we have a track record. Making the deal is the easy part for us. You know, especially in in, in the way TV economics work, uh, they'll buy ideas from proven writers knowing they can flush them hold them not release them and then the thing just you know you've put all this time in you've gotten paid but you don't have the project so the strategic part was this we knew that if we were able to realize this idea in the way we saw saw it in our heads that it would be potent and really could be a series so then the question was what's the most effective way to hedge your bet and make it a series. And we were happy to play the binary game, the one and zero game of it's either nothing or Mm -hmm. it's on television, which you can't do when you're pitching. You can only do that when you have, so we took the time, it was three and a half or four months, but it enabled us then to say to people, if you want this, you have to at least commit to shooting a pilot. Don't buy this if you're not gonna shoot a pilot. And we were able to create terms that we get the thing back, all sorts of stuff to leverage that possibility. And so that was the strategic part. And part of that meant understand, looking at each other and Andrew, uh, who was there for the beginning of this, looking at each other to say, uh, it's possible that at the end of this is nothing. But if there's something, we're going to be sitting in Mike Pesca's studio one day talking about our show that's on the air. Wait, is that the nothing scenario? Wait, remind me again. Could we go back? Yeah, we're actually on a podcast. That, nothing? Mike? that was the driver. That saw us through the dark moments. <laughs> but it seems, I am your beacon. But it yep. seems to me, though, the other huge element in getting people to th- see this is it's excellent. Your name, I think your name and the p- work itself makes the network interested. But Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. But I think especially Paul Giamatti, right? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Getting him attached, it would seem that you, the way you did it, did that complicate getting a huge actor involved? Or did that help you get the huge actor involved? But Paul's yeah. the, I mean, we're, he's the this the best guy in the world. No, you know it helps, right? Because you're you're now not going to your friend Paul Giamatti and saying, "Hey, we want to put together a project and we think we can get the financing." I mean, you're going to him. The, you know, Showtime buys it. They say they're going to make the pilot. They want to make it with you. Paul, yeah, Paul becomes available. Everybody's like, he'd be our first choice, and that's a very easy email and phone call for us to make to Paul. Yes, Paul, we're making a show for Showtime. They've greenlit the pilot. Here's the script. We'll be on a plane tomorrow to have dinner and talk about it. Are you in? So a pilot's a weird thing in a way. It's a unique type of art form because you don't watch it for a payoff at the end. You just watch it for possibilities. You don't want the possibility. You don't want the exposition to hit you over the head. As you know, I've been blah, blah, blah. So I think the pleasure in a pilot is not even that 
conflict pays off, which is pretty much the purpose of drama. The payoff of a pilot is that interesting things are set in motion. Yet, at, so you've done a bunch of pilots before, but is there a trick to that that I, as just the consumer, am not really appreciating? There are a couple of things that we were happy that we were able to do in the pilot. I will say there are things that these characters say in the pilot that don't appear to be like Chekhov's loaded gun, mm-hmm. but that turn out to be by episode 12. Well, let me tell you something. I, as a consumer, perhaps I'm wrong or perhaps I have... Uh, a spidey sense for Chekhov's gun. But at one point, uh, Paul Giamatti says, why didn't you be an honest businessman like my dad? And I went, bing! Sure. <laughs> right. There are little, I mean, there are other little ones. Like, you know, when, when I'll say when Damien's talking to his kids and talks about, you know, you got to be willing to look foolish in the short term to win in the long term. There are a bunch of things that are, the you know, if a, maybe perhaps a way to think about a pilot is that it's an overture. Yeah. But we do, are aware that in our favorite shows, often the pilot, is not the signature episode, right? The Sopranos and Mad Men are my favorite shows of all time. The Sopranos pilot's great, but episode four, College, is when The Sopranos became The Sopranos. Yeah. Jackie Priel's gone. He's dead. Tony, his free road ahead of him, goes and does this thing with his daughter. And that's the episode where Family Man and Mafia are crashed together. That phone call he makes to Christopher tells you about who they are, but now it's in a very active way. So for us, I know where we think the show found its voice. It's not really in the pilot. It's been so rewarding to us that the pilot's been received so well. So many people watched it. Twitter, so many people are loving it. What's great about that is for us, the show only, the power of the show only accretes as we go. David Levine, Brian Koppelman, they're the creators of Billions. They're just a couple of Jewish kids from Long Island who made good. Atheist. Yeah. (laughs) Bar Mitzvah? Fuck, yeah. It took the money, so... There you go. <laughs> Until you give it to a cost. Brian Koppelman and David Levine awesome. of Billions. Thank you guys so Thanks, much. Man. Okay, you knew it was coming, and here it is. Audible. Audible includes more than 180,000 audio programs from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainment, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. It's offering our listeners a free 30-day trial. I'll tell you about it in a second. But first, I'm going to tell you about a book or a series of books there by David Levine, who we just heard from. Some of his books are City of the Sun, a novel, Where the Dead Lay, Signature Kill, and those all are read by Scott Brick. It's a good gumshoe-type name. There's also $13 million pop and uh, another version of City of the Sun, this one narrated by Vincent Marzello. So whether by Marzello or Brick, you have your choices of David Levine books read on Audible. And as I said, free for 30 days. So you download a title free and you start listening. It's that easy. So that's a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. And now the spiel, keeping it real. The first season of Serial, we were told, taught the world that there's a huge audience for a story well told over installments, a story that could be complex, but that engages the listener, a story that relies on repeated, attentive listens. And to us in the world of podcasting, it was the crest of this podcast movement. Or maybe it's just that we like stories of murder. Maybe. Maybe Serial didn't show us that podcasting had possibilities. 
Maybe it showed us that Nancy Grace could be stripped of the bile and bathos and made to appeal to a much more discerning audience. Because season two of Serial, which has now gone bi-weekly, as acknowledged in two words at the top of today's show. One story told week by week, sort of. Is about the capture and release of Army Private Bo Bergdahl. As I've said on The Gist, season two had a big hill to climb. The main question of the show, which is really important in drama, what question is it answering? Season one was, did Adnan Saeed do it? Season two is, I don't know. It's kind of like, maybe, why did Bo Bergdahl do it? But it's become a lot of other things. There's really no one question. To me, that's okay. It just means it's not a great narrative, but it's still a great story. It's still great journalism. It's, you know, the ripples in a pond. Actually, let's stick to the auditory. It's more like the vibrations of a gong after it's rung. Who heard it? How'd they hear it? What went into ringing that gong? I really think it is remarkable journalism. I really think it is compelling, and I think it is no wonder that Reddit has turned against it, that the recappers regard their job as, as a duty, not a wonder, and that the discussion around Serial Season 2 among those who've stuck with Serial Season 2 is admirable, not obsessive. For the obsessive, there's this. Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. Law enforcement officers realized that they had screwed up big time. This is the Netflix series Making a Murderer about Stephen Avery, falsely convicted of rape, and later, the series strongly asserts, falsely convicted of a murder. Making a Murderer has its merits. It has tremendous merits. There was investigators questioning a mentally impaired 16-year-old. It is the best, the starkest portrayal of how misleading a confession can be. I've read lots about false confessions. I didn't need convincing that it's not true, as a prosecutor blithely asserts in making a murder, it's not true that guilty people don't confess. But until I saw the video, I never really saw the manipulative powers of police so clearly. The series raises excellent questions about the appropriateness with which prosecutors play the media game. They hold press conferences where they treat everyone watching TV as a potential juror. In this case, they spun tales misleadingly and without consequence. And it makes me wonder if countries like the UK don't have it right. Maybe a gag order is better. It seemed that the prosecutors strategically poisoned the air. But the documentarians, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos, suggest that they also poisoned the crime scene, and that's what I want to discuss. The documentarians, with the help of the extremely able defense attorneys, point out that evidence certainly seems to have been tampered with, so they put forward a theory of a frame-up. It's this idea that Stephen Avery was framed that's not just the defense strategy, it's the documentary's through line. I won't go over every bit of evidence so as not to bore you, just as the documentarians choose not to introduce every bit of evidence damaging to the Avery case so they won't bore you. But the evidence that they do dwell on has something in common. It's that there's a strong rebuttal. Because drama is conflict, assertion, rebuttal, thesis, antithesis. For instance, there was blood in Stephen Avery's car. Rebuttal. The blood was planted there. A great case was made that the Avery blood on file was tampered with. Another assertion. Avery's nephew confessed. Rebuttal. The confession was coerced. Yeah, we saw the tape. It seems to have been coerced. But all of this, all these strong rebuttals, they're really dramatic. The key that belonged to the victim, Teresa Hallback, which was found in Avery's room. Rebuttal. 
The cops who found it shouldn't have been there, unsupervised, according to the investigation's own protocols. Every piece of evidence presented had a really strong rebuttal, which is to say that worked dramatically. (gasps) No, I can't believe they tried to get away with that. (gasps) That's the explanation? And all this served to build the case for Stephen Avery being not guilty. But other pieces of evidence were elided because some evidence has to be left out, right? But when I've read about this and told what these pieces of evidence are to people who've seen the series, reasonable people, I usually get back, oh, really? Well, that's something to think about. Like Stephen Avery had a history of sexually abusing women. Like Stephen Avery tried to get Teresa Halbach to his house. He once answered the door in a towel. He owned chains and irons of the type described in the murder. A bullet with the victim's DNA came from a gun that certainly belonged to Avery. Avery's nephew, yes, his confused and mentally slow nephew, seems to have alleged that he was sexually abused by Avery. Avery's DNA, other than blood, was found in the victim's car. Now, it's not that there's no answers to any of these charges. It's just that the answers didn't have the oomph, the same oomph, that the rebuttals that were shown in the series had. Sometimes it's because it's just the same answer over and over again. They could have planted the blood. They could have planted the bullet. They could have planted the DNA. They could have planted every bit of physical evidence. Or... Maybe it was that certain facts, which aren't disputed, weren't included in the documentary because they weren't allowed at trial. Though I gotta say that standard seems capricious considering how much time we spent with the Avery family and the jury didn't get to see that. By the way, I don't think that documentarians shouldn't take a side. Uh, This week, The New Yorker, in an article by Catherine Schulz, reported that Penny Bernson, she was the rape victim, though Stephen Avery wasn't the rapist, Penny Bernson didn't want to participate in the documentary because she thinks that documentarians did make up their minds. Fine. Riccardi and Demos, to this day, say they haven't made up their minds, or at least they say in follow-up interviews like this one on Radiolab, they say it's not for them to pronounce guilt or innocence. Clearing Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey's name was never our objective. But they do say, as Sarah Koenig of Serial said, they do think that their subject was improperly convicted. They find problems in the prosecution, problems with the system. Serial, making a murderer, both say that they don't think the prosecution provided reasonable doubt. Now, for its part, Serial tried to imagine the prosecutor's case to at least present to the audience what they thought the prosecutor's best case was. Yes, the actual prosecutors had no real interest in participating with Serial. They won at trial. They didn't feel the need to relitigate. The defense advocates, they were very much driven to relitigate. That's how Sarah Koenig even heard of the case in the first place. Making a murderer was far less thorough about grappling with the hardest evidence or presenting the prosecutor's best case or even sparing a moment on Teresa Halbach, who she was as a person. We, as viewers, after 10 episodes then, feel like we're in a superior position to the jury that spent five weeks hearing all the evidence. I'm not saying that a jury's verdict must always trump a journalist's story, but it seems egotistical to spend time almost solely with the proponents of one side of the argument and then for us to conclude, oh yeah, that's the better side of the argument. In fact, we go further than that. We conclude that the other side, the side that we hardly spent any time with, didn't argue fairly. We're concluding about the fairness of a trial based on an unfair method. 
Much of this is credit to Avery's wonderful defense lawyers. They are a documentarian's dream. They show the value of talented lawyers. But so many times, Ricciardi and Demos just pointed the cameras at them, and they, better than a script, delivered a cogent narration which oriented the viewer. Of course, it oriented the viewer toward the side they were arguing. The hapless, loathsome DA, of course, declined invitations to participate because it didn't serve his purpose of attaining a conviction. Overall, as I said, making a murderer has a lot of merits. I was shocked that an elected prosecutor could say reasonable doubts for the innocent. I was shocked that a police department could break so many rules that a mentally challenged 16-year-old could be so abandoned by his supposed advocates and that so many investigative and prosecutorial tactics could be so bungled. But it also raises meta-issues of how strongly we as viewers should come to conclusions and what's the responsibility of filmmakers to set the ground rules. And yes, in this specific case, it raises questions if we've made a murderer into a cause celeb and turned a victim into an afterthought. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the gist producer. Steve Lichtig the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. The gist. Um, Peru. Da, Peru. Do, Peru. Thanks for listening.